Well, good morning. It is so good seeing all of you guys. As you make your way back to your seats, go ahead and uh, grab your Bibles. It seemed like as you started greeting, it just got louder and louder and louder and louder, which is great. Praise the Lord for that, that we as God's people can gather in the house of God and make much of Him. Um, and the reason we can gather is because He has redeemed us as His people. Um, yeah, let me pray for us. One of the things we want to pray for, our students are scattered all over the place, but Monday, uh, tomorrow, they're leaving for camp. Um, and so we want to pray for our students. We want to pray for our leaders um, as they take them to camp. And why don't you just take time right now and just lift up our leaders, lift up our students, ask that the Lord would do an incredible work in their lives, that, they would, uh, that there will be community among the students, um, and also that they would discover uh, what community looks like with Jesus, and that the gospel would just take such deep root in their hearts and just radically transform them. So let's pray for that, um, and then I'll close us in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for today. Thank you that you have redeemed us and that you have gathered us to worship you. That you've given us your spirit uh, that enables us to worship you, Lord, because without you, without your spirit, we cannot worship you. Um, Lord, we lift up our students as they leave for camp tomorrow. Lord, I pray that you'll be with our leaders, that you would strengthen them, empower them. Lord, it's going to be a long week for them, late nights, early mornings, and no sleep. And can you give them extra grace, extra patience as they deal with our students? Um, Lord, can it be a sweet time from the moment they leave here to the moment they come back, that they would just be a sweet aroma, a sweet community among the students as brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, as they gather and they serve the community, Lord, can you use them in a mighty way as they sit under the teaching of your word? Lord, can you speak to them? Can you become more real to them than ever before? Can the gospel be more than just a message they hear, but a message that radically transforms their lives, that impacts how they think and how they live? Lord, can you do an incredible work and our students as they leave. And Lord, I pray that as we gather here this morning, as we open up your word, can you speak to us? Can you make yourself known to us? Can you give us a word of encouragement, a word of instruction, or maybe even a word of rebuke for some of us? Lord, you know what we're going through. You know what we're experiencing. You know uh, the struggles that we're facing, the fears we're dealing with. Lord, can you minister to us? Can you help us to hear? Can you help us to understand? And can you help us to respond? We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
We're continuing our series through the book of 1 Corinthians, and so we're going to be um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 15. And, and so Paul, over the last three, four weeks, has been addressing the issue of eating meat sacrificed to idols. And so the big question that they really wrestled with in their church, in their context, is should a believer eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols? And so instead of Paul kind of addressing the issue and taking sides and saying whether they should or shouldn't, he kind of takes a different approach in the beginning and that he explains like the bigger issue that you need to deal with is that loving your brother and sister is far more important than just simply enjoying your rights. That there comes times in our lives that we have God-given rights that we get to enjoy, but at times we need to lay those rights aside for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because when we think about our rights and when we think about the gospel, like our rights are not going to be lasting rights. They're temporary and they're not super satisfactory. And yet the gospel is eternal. The gospel is more precious, more lasting, more satisfying than any of our rights we will ever enjoy here on earth. And then last week, Paul kind of like warned the church of Corinth that if you are a Christian, then you must live like a Christian because eternity is at stake. And so we learned that we must live our lives in light of the imperishable crown that is waiting for us, the eternal kingdom of God that we are inheriting. And so how do we do that? We do it by diligently exercising self-discipline and self-control. And so today, as Paul kind of wraps up this issue, he goes now and deals directly with the issue of eating meat sacrificed to idols. And then he's going to provide two principles and instructions that a believer and how a believer must live, that they must live intentionally in everything that they do. So what we're going to try to do is I'm going to try to work really hard um, to apply like eating meat sacrificed to idols. Because let's just be honest, anybody struggle with that? Like you're like, how is this relevant to me in the 21st century? So I'm going to try to apply it without stirring the pot too much and getting in too much trouble. So just pray for me as we navigate through this. So, so, let's, so let's look at the text and let's see how Paul directly addresses it in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 15. He says this, I'm speaking as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I am saying. The cup of blessing that we bless is not sharing in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break, is it not sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, since all of us share the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifice participate in the altar? What I am saying then, that food sacrificed to idols is anything, or that idol is anything? No, but I do say that what they sacrifice, the sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to participate with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot share in the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All right, so let's unpack this because just just like me, I have no idea what I just read. So let's just kind of unpack it because he's kind of all over the place. You're like, what does this all mean? So, So here's what's happening, okay? Paul is now directly addressing the issue of food sacrifice to idols. 
And he makes it clear that there are times that when you eat food sacrificed to idols, it can lead to the worship, the participation of worshiping idols. Okay? So that's kind of the point that he's trying to make. So he starts off by making this point, asking two rhetorical questions. Look at verse 16. Here's the two rhetorical questions he's asking. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless... Is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Now, if you pay attention to those two verses, there's one word that's repeated twice. In some of your translations, it's the word sharing. In some of your translation, it is the word participating. Okay? Now, the word sharing or the word participating translated in the Greek word is koinonia, which means Fellowship means sharing something in common with someone. And this is where we kind of get the idea that the participation of the Lord's table is called communion, a common union. And so the point that Paul is trying to make in these rhetorical questions in verse 16 is that when the church shares, when the church participates in the blood of Christ, they are enjoying fellowship with God. And why can they enjoy fellowship with God? Because of the blood of Christ that has redeemed them, that has washed them, that has reconciled them. So that when the church gathers and we take the cup, we're sharing in fellowship with God because of the blood of Jesus and what the blood of Jesus has accomplished for us. But then in the sharing of the table, The common union where we participate, not only do we share the cup and the blood of Christ's fellowship with God, but we also share in the body of Christ. And who's the body of Christ? We are. So in other words, communion, the Lord's table, we as God's people, we come and we gather and we have fellowship with God based on the blood of Jesus that allowed us to have fellowship with God. And we also have fellowship with one another because together we are the body of Christ. And it's this ceremony, this participating This sharing in where we participate in the death of Jesus Christ and all that his death has accomplished for us and all the benefits now we get to enjoy because of the death of Jesus Christ as we enjoy fellowship with one another. So here's a question, and this is kind of how we have to unpack it a little bit. What does it mean for the church to participate or share in Christ's death and enjoy the blessings that flow from Christ's death. So in other words, what does it mean for us to share in Christ's death and also share in the blessings that flow from Christ's death? And I think the best way to answer it, um, and, and I don't know if you've noticed my style of preaching, normally I try to ask questions and then I try to answer the questions with Scripture. I think the best way to always interpret Scripture is with, with Scripture. So I, I think there's a great example that we think about. Uh, when, when you think about the Old Testament to try to answer, what does it mean to share in, the, in Christ's death and the blessings that flow from Christ's death? Think about in the Old Testament, God has given his people uh, plenty of meals to observe and plenty of meals to celebrate. And what is the most famous meal in the Old Testament that they shared yearly? 
The Passover, okay? So think about the Passover. If you're not familiar with the story of the Passover, that was the time that God was gonna kill the firstborn of Egypt, but he was gonna make a distinction between his people and the people of Egypt. But how was he going to make that distinction? He was gonna make the distinction by the blood of the lamb that was sacrificed. So he told his people, I want you to take a, a, a lamb of one year old, I want you to slaughter it, and I want you to take the blood and cover the door frames with that blood. And then what I want you to do is I want you to roast that piece of meat and I want you to eat it with haste so that you can make it back into your houses so that when the angel of destruction or death is going to come, he's going to pass over. That's where we get the word pass over. He's going to pass over your house because the blood of the lamb on the door frames is providing a covering, a distinction so that death will not come to your house. Okay, so that when they killed the Passover lamb and when they are eating the meat, they're eating it and observing and celebrating that this sacrifice is sufficient enough to spare our lives from God's wrath. And the blessings that flow from it is that we are now God's redeemed, distinct people set apart to worship him. Think about the Old Testament. Every time they brought their sacrifice, not only would they sacrifice on the altar, but then part of that sacrifice would also be taking some of that meat and eat it in the presence of God and to believe that this sacrifice that was just sacrificed to God was sufficient enough to bring forgiveness of their sins so that they could be in right standing with God and now enjoying the benefits of God's people. That's what happened in the Old Testament. Everybody understands that? Now, Paul, in our passage, says, if that is true with what Israel did, then that's also true of what pagans do. What do pagans do? They come, they come to their temple because the gods are angry. How do you satisfy the angry gods? You bring a sacrifice, and they bring the sacrifice to these angry gods and hopes to appease these gods. And as they're eating it, they're hoping that Zeus or whoever is satisfied with that sacrifice, and that sacrifice now will allow them to have a good harvest or allow them to have plenty of kids or create plenty of wealth. So Paul kind of takes what Israel does and what the pagans does, and then he applies it to what the church does. And we know that the Passover meal was replaced with the Lord's Supper, because who's the ultimate Passover lamb? The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus. So when the church comes, what do we do? We come and we gather. The sacrifice has already been made, but we eat the elements, the blood, the, the cup and the bread that represents his blood and his body that was given to us. And as we drink it and as we eat it, we believe and we remember that Christ's blood is sufficient for us, that God accepts us and that God's wrath has been subsided because of the blood of Christ. And we now get to share all of the benefits of what Christ has accomplished for us. 
his victory, our victory. His defeat over sin, death, and Satan, our defeat over them. And so the point that Paul is making by this is this. How can you now sit at the Lord's table, celebrate what Christ has done for you, participating in his death, the blessings that flow from it, and then turn around and do it in another temple thinking that that's satisfied. You cannot share at the Lord's table and that of the table of demons. That's his point. So why would you go and sit at the Lord's table, celebrate his death and what is accomplished and all the blessings that flow from it, and then go turn around, eat meat that's sacrificed to idols in a temple and participating in what they think that sacrifice accomplished. Can you do it? Paul says, no. In other words, the principle in a sense he's teaching is, look, you cannot be united with Christ and united with sin. You cannot worship God and worship demons. I think Jesus taught a similar principle. You cannot worship two masters. Why? We'll either love the one or hate the other or hate the other and love the one. And that's the point he's trying to make. As he's addressing the worship, the, the eating of, of, of meat that's been sacrificed to idols, the point he is making is in doing that in that temple, you are basically participating in idol worship. And as much as you're trying to self-justify saying, well, I can do both, Paul says, you can't. And then he gives a warning at the end. He says this in verse 22. Or are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than him? And in other words, what he is saying is if you're continuing down that road of bowing down to God and bowing down to idols, participating at the Lord's table and participating at the table of demons, you are provoking the Lord to wrathful jealousy. In other words, the Lord is jealous, not over you, but he's jealous for his own name, for his own glory. In other words, God will not share his glory with another. And when we bow down to idols, what are we doing? We are robbing God of his glory because inadvertently we're saying, you're not God, this is God. You don't provide sufficiently, this provides sufficiently. And Paul says, do you think you're stronger than God? In other words, what he is saying, do you think you're strong enough to withstand God's jealous wrath? And the answer is, nope, you cannot do it. So, anybody ate meat in a temple the other day? No? Okay, so what does that mean for us? How, how do we apply this to our lives? Because again, we don't, we don't eat meat in other temples. Like for us, the idea of sacrifice is just weird. And yet for them, it's normal. So what does that look like? I think what that looks like is Paul kind of gives us a warning. Uh, here's, I think here's what we, we struggle with in our culture, especially as Christians. We try to figure out what does it look like for a Christian to live in our culture today? And here's what all of us want. We want the best of what God has to offer and the best of what the world has to offer. And guess what is always in conflict? The things of God and the things of the world. 
And as much as you try to spin it and self-justify, I think Paul teaches us a principle. You cannot share in the Lord's table and the table of the world. They are at odds. And if you continue down that road, you are provoking the Lord's jealousy because he will not share his glory with another. And so for everybody, that looks a little different. Like what are some, and I think maybe that's a personal question you have to ask yourself. What are some of the things of this world you're trying to justify to kind of fall in line with your Christian life? For, for, for some, it might be looking like fame, career, power, money. For others, it might be identity, acceptance. For others, it might be pleasure. Like, because it seems like the Christian life is a life of self-denial, but then the world is like making life really fun. And so I kind of want to have fun, but I don't want to deny myself. And what is that? And like, then I try to kind of justify. And it's like, there are times that they're at odds. So what does that look like for you? And Paul concludes, and maybe this will be helpful for us, as he concludes this instructions, he's going to give us final instructions, and he says, in everything that you do, I want you to do everything intentionally. And he gives us two principles. Let's look at verse 23 as we see the, the first principle. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything, build, everything builds up. No one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. Now, if you notice in verse 23, um, the, the phrase everything permissible is in quotation marks. So in other words, um, that was the church of Corinth. That was their slogan. Hey, Paul, we can do whatever we want to. We're free in Christ. Everything is permissible for us. And what does Paul say? He, he takes that slogan and then he refutes it. He says, yeah, you're right. Everything is permissible, but not everything might be helpful or constructive. Sure, you can do it, but it might not be helpful. It might not be constructive. And since not everything is helpful, not everything is instructive, what must you do? And if you're taking notes, here's the very first principle he gives us. Seek to build up others or the good of others in everything that you do. So in light of the Christian freedom that we all get to enjoy, in light of the life here on this earth, some things might be permissible, but the question that you have to ask yourself is, is it helpful? Is it constructive? And how do you need to be intentional by it? By making sure that everything you're doing, you're building up others around you. And that is not just the, the, the believer, the brother in Christ, but that's also the, the non-believer. So I'm going to get myself in trouble and that's okay. Let's, let's just go for it. Um, yeah, I'm going to regret this, but let's just have at it, and then I'll just jump out. I'll throw the grenade and run away, okay? Here's the grenade. Uh, yeah, like, like, we do live in a culture today where it's like we get to enjoy freedom of speech. 
And, and everybody, like, especially with social media, all of us, we feel like we have a platform and we have a voice and we need to voice our opinions and our thoughts and our feelings on anything and everything. Um, and, and let's just be honest, social media has almost become like a septic tank. There's no way of jumping in without getting out and not being covered in. You fill in the blank. And it's kind of ingrained to us, like, I'm a free person. I can say whatever I want to, however I want to. I can express my truth in a way that makes me feel better about myself. And for the Christian, Paul says, yeah, true, on paper, you're free to say whatever you want to, whenever, however. But does that always build up? Is that always constructive? Do we have freedom of speech? Oh, absolutely. Well, some of you would say, well, maybe not. But in a sense, you do. Like right now, I have freedom of speech. No one is killing me yet. Maybe afterwards. And the principle that Paul applies to us is, in our freedom of speech, are we building others up? Which means, every time we say something, every time we voice an opinion, we have to be intentional. We have to be thoughtful of saying, does that build the other person up? Is it constructive? Is it helpful? Now, I know some of you, the push saying, well, so does that mean we should not proclaim truth? No, because what does truth do? Truth always builds up, right? Doesn't truth, doesn't the Bible say that you will know the truth and the truth will, will set you free? But what we have to think about is how am I communicating that truth? What is the attitude of me communicating that truth? Am I commuting that truth to kind of take a hammer and beat you over the head to break you down and sh show you how dumb you are? Or am I trying to use that truth to reveal to you, hey, brother, hey, sister, hey, neighbor, when you go down that route, you are going down the route of destruction. And I am warning you with the truth of Scripture because I love you and I care for you. And Paul says, you have freedoms in Christ. But you need to be careful how you exercise those freedoms. And the very first thing you must do in exercising those freedoms is ask yourself, am I doing it for the good of others? Am I doing it to build others up in everything? Paul gives us the second principle. I'm sorry, he doesn't give us the second principle yet. He's going to now take this principle and he applies it with the building up, with the seeking of others. And again, he's going to talk uh, offered food to idols. So let's quickly go through it and look at the second principle. Um, look at verse, verse 25. Again, he's talking to the church of Corinth. They're arguing whether we should eat meat sacrificed to idols. He gives them principles, and now he's going back, and he's showing them how you should apply the principles in three different situations. Here's the first situation. Verse 25, he says, Eat everything that is sold in the meat market without raising questions for the sake of conscience, since the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. Okay, so here's the first scenario that he describes. Because there are some Christians that just didn't feel like they could eat the meat that was sacrificed to idols. And Paul says to them, look, if you don't know about it, just go ahead and eat it. Why? Because technically God created everything. Everything belongs to him. Just eat the meat. Here's the second situation he describes, uh, verse 27. 
He, he says, if any of the unbelievers invite you over and you want to go eat everything that is set before you without raising questions for the sake of conscience. So now the second situation is, let's say you go over to Bob's house. Bob doesn't believe in Jesus. Bob bows down to Zeus, but he's your friend and he invites you over. What, is, what, is, what does Paul tell you to do? Just eat it. Don't ask questions. Well, well, well Bob, where did this meat come from? Is this USDA approved? It, you know, was, was this animal under harmful conditions? He says, just for the sake of conscience, just go ahead and eat the meat. But now here's the third situation. Look at the third situation, verse 28. But if someone says to you, hey, bud, this food is from, is from a sacrifice, what does he say now? Do not eat it out of consideration for the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your own conscience, but the other person's. For why is my freedom judged by another person's conscience? If I participate with thanksgiving, why am I criticized because of something for which I give thanks? So in other words, you're at Bob's house. And the situation three is Bob says, as you're about to eat it, and it looks really good. It's cooked to perfection, medium rare. That's the only way you should eat meat. Hey, uh, yeah, th this, I got this meat on sale because uh, we sacrificed it at the temple of Zeus. Paul says, what do you do? You put your knife and fork down and you say, no, thank you, Bob. Why? This is the part where it's a little confusing. And at least as I was trying to make sense of it is this. First of all, there's a reason why Bob told you. Second of all, Bob might not understand your explanation that everything belongs to the Lord. Why? Because Bob does not believe in the Lord. He thinks Zeus is the Lord. So you're not doing it for your own conscience sake, for your own benefit's sake, but whose benefit are you abstaining for? For Bob's. Because you're trying to teach Bob that Zeus is not God. Jesus is. And that's why he says, just walk away from it. Um, now he gives us the second principle. So the first principle, and, and how do we exercise our freedoms? Uh, even though we can do it, we must always seek to build the others up. Uh, whether it includes eating or drinking, um, we should try to build others up. If that means we must abstain from it, go ahead and abstain from it. Then verse, verse 31, here's the second principle he gives us. He says, so whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God of God. I think you guys know our second principle if you're taking notes. You guys get it? Do everything for the glory of God. So as a Christian, everything we must do is for the glory of God as we seek to build others up in everything we do. So the question is, like, what does it mean to do everything for the glory of God? And maybe a, a more narrower question is, what is the glory of God? So, so real simple, the glory of God is God displaying his holiness and his goodness. Or another way of thinking it is the glory of God is the display of God's godness. That's the glory of God. He is displaying his godness, his goodness, his holiness. And to do everything for the glory of God is to glorify God 
in everything. It is a display. It is a reflection of how good God is and who he is, his holiness and his godness. Um, Catechism questions are really helpful. Uh, The New City Catechism question, question six says, how can we glorify God? And here's the answer. Very simple. I think it's it's simple enough for kids to remember. It's simple for for you to remember. How do you glorify God? You glorify God by enjoying him, loving him, trusting him, and obeying his wills, his command, and his law. So when Paul says, do everything for the glory of God, he is saying, in everything that you do, enjoy God. How do we enjoy God? By enjoying the good gifts that he has given us. Did you know that when you enjoy food, you're glorifying God? Because by enjoying food, you're saying, oh God, you're so good by making a cow taste so great. Oh, the taste buds that you have placed in my tongue that is tasting all these different flavors. It's my mind is just exploding with all these different flavors. How good are you that food would actually be good? Because food is technically just for nourishment, but he doesn't just give it to us for nourishment. He also gives it to us for enjoyment. We glorify God by by loving him and trusting him, believing that everything that he has given us and has done for us and the commands that he gives us is, is what? To take our joy away? No, but it's to give us an even greater joy in him. That everything he does is for our good and for his glory. So we glorify God when we feel, when we think, when we act in ways that make much of God, that shows that God is supremely great and good and all-satisfying. So in the context of food sacrifice to idols, or maybe what we can say in the context of enjoying certain freedoms we have as Christians, what are the two principles that should guide us in enjoying those freedoms? The first one is the building up of others. Make sure that as we enjoy it, we're building others up around us. As we enjoy those freedoms, we glorify God in everything. And I would even argue, like one commentator says, you can really take those two principles and merge them together. And so if you're taking notes, here's the merger of these two principles into one. We glorify God. In other words, we make much of God when we build up others in everything that we do. Did you know that when you build up others, you're glorifying God? Because again, you're reflecting God. What does God do? Does God not love his creation? Has God not redeemed his creation? Is God not going to make his creation new when he created everything? Were they not created to reflect who he is? Were we not made in the image and the likeness of God? In other words, we're reflectors of God. It's like we're little mirrors of God. And that's what Paul says. And then he applies, how do we do everything for the glory of God? Look at verse 32. He says, give no offense to Jews or Greeks or the church of God. 
What does he mean by give no offense? Does he mean like we're always responsible when what we say causes people to get offended or upset or annoyed and resentful? No, I don't think that's what he means by give no offense. But rather, I think what he means by giving no offense is not purposefully cause others to stumble where it could harm them. So basically, he's saying to the Gentile, hey, when you're with Jews, don't take a piece of pork rib and just eat it in front of them and say, ooh, this is so delicious. Why? Like, that's offensive to them. You're doing it on purpose. You're causing them to stumble. You're actually like saying, come at me, bro. And the same with the Jews. Don't walk around uh, in front of the Gentiles and kind of keep your distance because they're not good enough, because they're unclean. They're not allowed to enter into your home. No. Like, give no offense. Cause no one to purposefully stumble in which it could possibly harm them. And then Paul illustrates how he tries to keep others from stumbling. He says in verse 33, we're almost done. Just as I also tried to please everyone and everything, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of many, so that they may be saved. In other words, what Paul is saying is, I am trying to please everyone. Now, that does not mean Paul is a people pleaser. But Paul does try to please others above himself. But at the end of the day, he ultimately wants to please God because he wants to make sure that everybody knows God. Why does he want to please others? So that they could accept him? No, he wants to please others so that what would happen to them? That God would save them. He is pleasing others so that they could be saved. Now, it's dangerous for us to want to please others because many of us want to please others so that they could accept who? us but paul is saying no i want to please others i want to build others up i want to think put others before me not so that they can think good of me but so that they can be saved and then the last prince the the last thing he tells me he says imitate me as i also imitate christ think about this The point that Paul is indirectly making, and I think he's constantly beating the drum, that there are times that we give up our rights for the sake of others. There are times that we deny ourselves to build others up. And then Paul says, hey, do what I do. But who is Paul ultimately imitating? Christ. Can you think of a better example of anyone who has given up his right for the sake of others. Think about this here. Last passage and we're done. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. Again, Paul writes this to the church in Philippi, and he says in Philippians 2, verse, verses 5, he says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Basically, it's imitate Christ. What did Christ do? Verse 6, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. What does that mean? In other words, Jesus did not say to God the Father, I am God just as much as you are God. 
I'm not doing this. I'm not giving up my heavenly status for these people because I am God and I have every right because I am God. He did not do that. But instead, what did he do? Verse 7. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of a humanity, and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself. In other words, Jesus, who is God, emptied himself. He humbled himself. How did he empty himself? He did not empty himself of his divinity as if he's any less God, but rather he emptied himself of his heavenly status, okay? So think about this. Here's Jesus, the creator of everything. Paul says in Colossians, for everything was created for him, by him, through him, and all things are held together in him. The creator the sustainer of the universe, who spoke everything into existence, sat on his throne in his heavenly status where angels are worshiping and adoring him. That is his very right because he is God. And yet he relinquished that heavenly status, that throne, And what did he do? He took on flesh. He took on humanity. And his humiliation began by the infleshing, by taking on flesh. Think about this. The God of the universe took on flesh and became a helpless baby where his own butt had to be white. The one who spoke everything into existence. You don't think Jesus knew he had to do that and what that entailed? Taking on uh, on humanity and not just becoming any man. Not becoming middle class, upper class, royal class. But what kind of man? The Bible says a, a servant. A slave taking on the likeness of humanity meant he felt everything and experienced everything there is to experience as humanity. Jesus experienced fear, death, betrayal, abandonment, disappointment, being falsely accused, mocked, saddened. In other words, there is nothing that humanity has experienced that Jesus has not experienced as human. And not once on taking on flesh did he cling to his rights. That this is wrong. I should not be experiencing this right now. Don't you know that I am God? You should be knowing better. But what does he do? Paul says, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That in his humiliation of relinquishing his heavenly status and taking on flesh, becoming human and experience everything that humanity has experienced, he continues in his obedience to the will of God, even to the point of death, death on the cross, which shows us it was God's will for Jesus to die. And Jesus submitted to that will without once 
clinging to his rights. Don't you know who I am? I should not be doing this right now. And yet, how did he do it? Begrudgingly? Joyfully. And not just any death. Death on a cross. Which means it was one of the most humiliating deaths you could ever experience. It would be way easier for his head to be cut off because it would be over, but he would be beaten to a bloody pulp. He would be hung on a cross, stripped naked for everyone to see. And as they walked by him, they would mock him. Anybody like walking around naked? No. Why? Shame. This was his death. It was utterly humiliation. And yet, after his death, after his greatest humiliation, came his exaltation. Look at verse 9. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave, the, gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, like how did God display his glory through the humiliation and the exaltation of his son? After the greatest humiliation came the greatest exaltation. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And I, and I love that phrase. It means they're going to do it whether they want to or not. Why? Because Jesus is king and he rules and he reigns over everything. And not once did he cling to his rights. And if this is what our Savior has done for us, walking the road of humility, laying aside his rights for the salvation of many. Should we not follow in the footsteps of Christ, laying aside some of our rights, walking in humility for the possible salvation of people? And here's the encouragement here. Because let's just be honest, no one wants to give up their rights, no one wants to be humiliated. But yet here's the motivation for the Christian. What happens after humiliation? Exaltation. You, just as Christ was humiliated and is exalted, you who are united with Christ will go through humiliation and you too will be exalted. You will receive your crown of glory. You will be glorified. And you know what you're going to say? I just did my duty. That is what Paul says, how we ought to live our lives. We do everything for the glory of God to build up others, believers, non-believers. We try to please others, not so that we can get their acceptance or their approval, so that the Lord could save them. And ultimately, really what we're doing is we're following in the steps of our Savior who humbled himself, relinquished his rights for the salvation of of you and for me. And as the church, let us follow in the footsteps of our Savior. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for this word. Um, it is really hard. But help us to look to you. Help us to see um, who you are, what you've done. Even though our minds cannot fathom what it means to relinquish your heavenly status, 
by taking on flesh and walking on this earth, experiencing everything we've ever experienced, and becoming a slave and being humiliated on the cross so that we can be saved. Lord, help us in laying aside some of our rights. Help us to abandon our idols. Help us to do everything for your glory. As we continue to pray, I just want you to maybe reflect on this question. What are some of the idols, what are some of the rights that you're clinging to, that you're kind of bowing down to and worshiping? How's the Spirit convicting you and stirring you that maybe it's time to lay that aside? Well, can you help us? You know the idols that we cling to. You know our hearts in this message. Can you help us to follow the footsteps of you, Lord Jesus? And can you help us to do everything for your glory by building others up around us? In Jesus' name, amen.